Hey guys, Sklar Brothers here from View from the Cheap Seats podcast. And this week we have one of the best sports writers in the game. And he's got a great podcast as well. Jonah Carey joins us on the podcast. Did you have fun on View from the Cheap Seats, Jonah? I had the most fun and my commute was about 14 steps down to my living room. We did it in your living room. We're in Denver. It's a little road. uh, I'm going to call it a road victory for us all. We all There's no one I want to talk to more than who right now during these baseball playoffs than than Jonah Jonah Carey. Carey. So join us on this episode because we take the deepest dive. Let me just say there is a three a <laughs> Mordecai three, three finger, finger brown reference. There you go. That's and by there. the way, Gar Ryness is not here. I'm kissing him. I'm, I'm giving love. a shout out now. I feel like he always needs to be at least in spirit. When we love talk. to the batting stance yes. guy. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough, and to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D S T L D. You get, like, brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FARRELL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. If you like my theme music there, that is a band called Les Blanks. Check them out. They are great. Uh, Also, if you haven't listened to my show before, it is just what the title implies there. It is a conversation with me, Matt Dwyer, and I I always have um, fascinating guests on, artists, writers, activists, legendary musicians, filmmakers. And they're all great and fascinating people with great stories. Today's guest is Cindy Campanera, and this was uh, this was a big deal for me to have her on my show because um, when I was a lot younger and aspiring to be a member of Second City and a writer and a comedian, uh, Ms. Campanera was on the stages there, and I was a big fan. So then we became friends, and uh, then she wrote this amazing book, and now I get to have her on my show. And that... Uh, I still am that guy who, uh, when I talk to the cool people who I once, you know, greatly admired, and I still am like, hey, you're doing this. And I feel like sometimes I like a 15-year-old inside because I'm so excited. Uh, Ms. Campanera wrote an incredible book called, called I Triggered Her Bully, and it's a, it's a really warm and hilarious a bunch of essays about her growing up in Canaryville on the south side of Chicago and her life. And uh, she's really, it's an, it's an incredible book. It's a book that I just has stuck with me and I hope I'm praising. It's on Kindle. You can get it on the Kindle there. I triggered her bully and it's coming out in a hard copy soon. So if you don't like Kindles or own a Kindle, you can go buy this goddamn thing on paper and go, Ooh, paper. Uh, I don't, personally, I hope they keep making books and paper. I'm going to buy it on paper too, in in paper form. So I'll have both because I'm one of those guys who's uh, likes to have actual books. So then 
you know, people come over and they're like, ooh, somebody reads. Most of them are just decoration to be like, hey, look, Jean-Paul Sartre or Sartre, depending on your pretension levels. Um, real quick before we get into the interview, I just want to plug something real quick of mine. I uh, actually have a website up, themattdwyer.com, T-H-E, Matt Dwyer. That's, uh, and you can get all my info, my all all things Matt Dwyer are on there. Shows I'm going to be doing, um, writing you could stream my podcast from there. You could look at pictures of me in a diaper. I believe there's a picture of me in a diaper. Weird thing was six months ago, not as a child. Uh, okay, let's get into the conversation with Cindy Campanera and her book, I Triggered Her Bully. Let's get on with the conversation with Cindy Campanera. noticed that uh, one of the dogs threw up on the bed. This is what I love about the um, the podcast on the phone. I can actually uh, find dog puke on the bed <laughs> while we do the podcast. That is great. My dog always starts uh, barking when, once I put on the the headphones to start podcasting. <laughs> he, starts, he starts whining at me, and then I have to give him a rawhide and hope hope nothing makes him bark. Oh boy. Okay. So, how's things? Things are good. And uh, I just uh, to start off, I just I think I know I've told you this because we sometimes write to each other, but uh, uh your book is just it's so goddamn good and it makes me feel uh it makes me feel homesick, but it also makes me feel warm inside because it's just such a goddamn Chicago book. <laughs> I know, isn't it? <laughs> it's crazy. Uh I don't I don't really Set, I and I feel bad about this. I don't really know Canaryville. I've known people from Canaryville, uh, but for those of those people who don't know, because I would say your book is mostly about your life in Canaryville, most of it, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yes. It seems like everything starts there and then kind of ends where I am now, or like how I got to where I am now. But it all it all pretty much starts there. It it heavily informs all the material for sure. And uh, I would guess, you know, I as well, growing up Irish Catholic and with Chicago roots. I mean, that shit informs your entire life, sometimes good and bad. Yes, absolutely. You know what? Um, if someone calls in while I'm on this phone, is that going to affect the taping, or will you be able to hear that? Uh, yeah, we'll be fine. Okay, fine. Um, I'm sorry. Ask me your question again. <laughs> uh, just how that worked. Oh, yes. No, I know exactly what you mean. It was good and bad. It was everything. It was the tale of two cities. It was all things good and all things bad. Because it was the thing I needed to leave, but it completely shaped who I was. So it gave me, like, one thing about leaving was it made me really sad to have to leave there to make my way, but I knew I couldn't stay there because I thought differently. So it was sort of, you know, it is. It's like bittersweet. Yeah, you know, Absolutely. Uh, growing up, because that neighborhood is very working class, and uh, you write about your father uh, get, like getting in all these fights in front of a bar, which I totally can relate to. <laughs> <laughs> But it's like when you said you thought differently, like I remember like my brothers, you know, 
calling people the N-word and whatnot. And I just remember being like, I don't, I was just like perplexed by these things. Like, I felt like I was a different person. Like, like what did you notice that was so different from you other than you probably weren't a racist either? I think what I've noticed, I don't know, because I because there is that part of me that is, you know, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about kind of person. Um, I think the first thing I noticed was that I was never going to be able to be with any of these men. Like, I really seriously thought I was going to have to marry a man from another country because I didn't know. Like, I don't know if I ever told you that story about Evan Gore. You know, Evan Gore's father was a photographer. I didn't know that about his father. And my first thought was, like, your dad's gay. <laughs> Just because he was artsy? Yes, because he didn't work at Streets and Sands, and he didn't fight all the time, and he actually fucking took pictures. It's like, your dad's gay. What else could he be? <laughs> oh, yeah, I was terrified to tell my family, like, I was interested in theater, because that was, like, I was just like, oh, they're going to think I'm gay, and then I'm going to get the shit kicked out of me. Totally. Did you, but did you, like, were you creatively inclined right away? Did you know, like, oh, I want to do theater and I want to write? Yes, because, well, here was the thing. In my neighborhood, we had this thing called the, well, there's a couple different answers to that question. In my neighborhood where I grew up, every year there was this thing called the St. Patrick's Day play, which I, I think I make an allusion to in one of my stories. And it was, it was like Canaryville's Broadway and there was a history, like, a, like now the parish is a hundred and something years old, but there was a history of families being in these plays. My grandfather was an actual recording artist on Rain Records. He made like eight, rec- eight um, you know, 78s, different ones. And so my, like I come from this family of living room singers. It was like the only family you got shamed for not wanting to get up and do a song. And so the whole, there was this whole theatrical performance element to it, even though, so I was inclined and that was in a weird way supported, but not necessarily, I don't think not necessarily as a livelihood, but every, you know, all my family parties were, um, everybody gets up in the living room and does a number. Everybody, and everybody had their number, but like the <laughs> one of the funniest ones was I have a gay brother, Bill, and the first time he sang "Don't Rain on My Parade," nobody thought for a second that he was gay. They were just so happy he could hit all the notes. <laughs> and so there was there was a weird thing like that, but at the same time, you know it. It's like I say in my book, it's sort of like a don't be a big shot, bring a sweater. You know, and you know the whole attitude of Chicago is like, you can do okay, but don't do better than us. Like, don't, don't do that good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it, it seems like even all my Chicago friends, they gotta, even if they're in actors and stuff, they gotta, they gotta put you in check all the time and make sure you're not getting too big for your britches. Always. And there's something, you know, I mean, maybe it's a blue-collar Irish-Italian thing where, you know, it's not like growing up in a family where you were always affirmed, where you were constantly affirmed. 
So you sort of do your thing in spite of instead of because of, you know. Um, but there was something else I wanted to speak to in terms of the question you just asked me that keeps popping into my head, and then, of course, I keep losing it, which was besides the play, well, I can't remember. Maybe it'll come back. Uh, performing? Was there other performing in the, in the neighborhood that you <clears throat> Well, the other thing, too, that I remember, like for me, in my high school, I went to an all-girl Catholic high school, and I was already doing, like, Woody Allen monologues when I was, like, a junior in high school. Like, I was already making my my peers, like, for the drama festival do Woody Allen monologues. So I, there was, and I was already writing pieces that my mother would make me, like, I remember writing a piece about being heavy or, like, not ever, you know, being fat, even though I actually wasn't that fat, but my mother was so disappointed in my weight that I felt fatter than I was. And um, But I had a piece about that that I wrote for, like, one of my high school classes, and she would always be like, bring that, go get that thing you wrote and read it, you know, because she wanted it. <laughs> That's another Chicago thing. Like, my mom is always pointing out how – how physically wrong everybody is like oh she's heavy or like you know oh she's got a nice figure but her her tits are too small <laughs> like just stuff like that well she doesn't say tits but it's super critical there is an element of it that's just super critical i mean you know i it was always i missed i mistook ridicule for love like it was just like so whenever i was making fun of someone they didn't know that i actually liked them there was a guy in college, this really cute guy, and I remember him saying to me, why are you laughing at me all the time? And I wanted to say, don't you know that that's the most important thing to me ever? Like, because what you're doing is making me laugh, and you should be so honored that I'm laughing at you. Like, it was so fucking twisted. Yeah, I've told people, like, if I insult you, that means I like you. It's if I don't insult you, you should, you should start <clears throat> questioning things. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, it, and it's so weird because I've like that whole, and then it, but then like the criticism gets in my head because then it's like you know you become I, I became very self-critical. Did you find that as well? Yes, I found that I had to actually start working on, um, you know, being kinder and not letting those voice. You know, it's sort of like you have to lose the family of origin voice and create your own voice when you become like your own parent. I used to think, remember when we would be at Second City and there would be people that would do a stall, you know, during um, the set, and they would do the same bit over and over again? And I would always be like, oh, my God. If I did a bit once and it killed, I'm like, awesome. What's the next bit? Like, there was no way I would do a bit twice without feeling like the biggest hack. And then there was a period of time where if I had an idea like two days in a row, you'd be like, Cindy, come on. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> where people will build an entire career on one thing right. and, just, and just talk about it over and over and over and over again. And I'm like, oh, my God, didn't you do that bit last week in the set? And it worked, and now you're doing it again because you know it works? Like you're such a cheater. Look how many jackasses just write the same book repeatedly and just throw on – I, I want to say names, but I don't want to uh, – Chelsea Handler. You're talking about me? <laughs> I'm talking about you. But, uh, you know, it's interesting too, though, because when I read your pl- your book, I, I kept thinking of it – for some reason it popped theatrically in my head. There was a very 
like I was like, God, I wish this was a play in a lot of ways. Well, you know, the thing I like about it is I like reading it out loud. And I think down the line, it, when I do an audio book, I think it's going to be a really fun thing because it'll be like listening to a show as opposed to, you know, uh, I didn't know if I should enter the basement door because the lock was so severely uh, damaged upon my approach or, you know, whatever. As I approach the door, I, so it's super, it's super conversational. And I don't know if, how, what that speaks to in terms of me. There was one time in my career when I was working on the Fran, one of the Fran Drescher shows, and, and it was exactly how you think it would be. And at the same time, I was reading A Widow for One Year by John Irving. I know I make it sound like I read a lot. <clears throat> I, I read maybe a book a year, but I read a lot of other stuff. But, um, and I'm thinking, I can't call myself a writer. I'm coming up, I'm trying to come up with jokes for Fran Drescher. He wrote a book that had four characters, and each of the characters were writers. So he wrote four characters and wrote things that the characters themselves would write that weren't even his you know what I mean? It was so, yeah. I'm like, okay, so he's a genius. Uh, I'm working for Fran Drescher. Let's just keep, but let's the, just. It, it, like back home, they you're, you're in your neighborhood, people must have lost, was that like impressive to them? Like, oh, she she did it? Or were they still give you guff about that? Well, I, no, I mean, I don't know if that was, there was other shows I worked on that they felt like she did it. And they can't understand why I can't keep a job. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> you know, some shows are better than others. And I think they, they're, they're actually, they spend a lot of time trying to figure out where I live. Now, are you in New York or no? Because last time you were in New York. Yeah, I know. I go there sometimes. So you're in L.A. now? You know, yeah. Yeah, and my, my mom always thinks, like, why can't, like, why can't they give you a job? You know, because it's like that's how it was in the neighborhood. It was like, oh, you just go right. with Carl. You can work at the grocery store. It's like, it's like you can't do that with Paramount Studios, Mom. <laughs> you delivered a lot of votes for your precinct, Captain. I don't know why you can't get a job <laughs> on the truck. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it's like it's strange because I, I think people who don't really have never been to Chicago don't get quite get how it's its own unique. It's its own unique world. There's not other. It's not like any other place with the way it operates, like shit like that. No, I know, and even that is changing a lot. But even I know other people have similar experiences, like the New York guys and. It was kind of similar, but I think the most similar would probably be Boston than uh, like us in terms of that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's definitely, you know, the place that's really hard to leave. And um, like even like now more than ever, I really miss it. I miss hanging with my cousins and spending time with my dad and my sister and just, you know, Everyone on the block is related to me, and I can go into any house and have a cup of coffee, and there's kids running around, and, you know, it's awesome. 
Why do you think you miss it more now than ever? Because I feel like I've invested a lot of time in my career, and I've done pretty well. Uh, it wasn't the big answer I thought it was going to be. It was just this sort of really interesting, great way to earn a living. And uh, I was fortunate, you know, I've been fortunate enough to do that. But at the end of the day, it's just this. It's just show business. You know what I mean? It's not like... That's, you said something interesting, though. It's not the big answer I thought it would be. What was... Because I feel the exact same way, but I'm curious what you thought the big answer was or what it would be. Well, I suppose there... I suppose, you know, I thought I was going to be famous. I thought I was going to be have a different career. Um... Or I thought I had the potential to have that career. I didn't know if I had all the necessary components, but I knew I had the talent to have that career. But that's only a portion of what is necessary. So <clears throat> there were other things that I weren't as good at, that I wasn't as good at, you know what I mean, And in terms of politics or interpersonal relationships or whatever the thing was. And... um so for whatever the reason, my path was this path, which is absolutely fine. And I have a very happy life. But now that I see that it's just this, and I am going to have my 75th birthday in May, so that's a joke. I I'm not 70. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. That is – like, I was like, did I like lose my mind or something? <laughs> Anyhow, I just feel like, and I probably since my mom, you know, passed away a couple of years ago, and it's just sort of like things, they change, and you're like, oh, you know what, that's not that important, and that used to interest me more, but it really doesn't anymore, and, you know, so you're really getting precious or protective about how you're spending your time, who you're spending it with, what are you spending it on, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's interesting, because I feel like there's what you're saying is how you're content and you're like oh this is what it is and it's i know a lot of people in within the business who just can't seem to be happy and it's always like i want more i want more i want more and i even said to a friend i was like well you should just be happy with what you have cuz you're never going to have what you want or feel like like you're just in a vicious circle of like what you want and it's not going to make you happy right it, it just seems like we are in a business that really makes people miserable and they don't see it well also too there's so many elements like okay so you're on a great show but the people are awful or you're on a terrible show but the people are awesome and so your ego's trying to get your head around that well you know uh, or you want something really badly and you don't get it then you let it go and then you get it and you're like well i don't need it now because and most of the time I find recently that the things that I thought were important were just the things that I could talk about at a party. But did they really? Like sometimes I even think about going to a concert. I'm like, do I really want to go to the concert or do I want to tell somebody I went to the concert? Yeah, I used to do that too. Now, when and I used to, like, when somebody would ask you, like, oh, what have you been up to or what are you doing? Like, my stomach would start to hurt because I was like, fuck, I don't have a good answer. <laughs> Like, right. I have Law and Order to say that I watched. Right. I didn't even work on it. <laughs> right. And, and I have a whole rewrite for a Law and Order that was shot in like '97. <laughs> like that. 
Are you? I just have some story notes about how they could have done the, um, the, uh, what do they call the person who does the cuts open the dead body? The coroner's report. I had some notes on the coroner's report from a criminal intent from like '94, but other than that, I got nothing. Yeah, because you said you mentioned. I see the, the at one point you live like I was dying. It is something that was in the book, I'm tr- and I'm actually vague on what that means now, but. Like how you were saying, like now you're more content. Like in the book, you're talking about like you, you'll watch television for a few hours in the morning, and like yes. you don't need this big exciting life. And I'm like, isn't that also living a good life? Like uh, people always live like, oh, like people think living is being excessive and like cramming shit up their nose. It's like why is right. that, why is that considered the good life? <laughs> it's like I know that's the thing. There's such a fine line between. Um, you know, like spending two to three hours in the morning watching TV is not a good life. It really isn't. It's what I did to help quelch some of the anxiety. Because like I said, I couldn't tell the difference between going to a party and going to the dentist. It all felt the same. So I think ultimately what I would like to do is maybe instead of two hours worth of television, I could do one hour and then maybe go for a walk because the sun's out and it's nice. You know, so you, I can think of different, more productive ways to spend my time because the television only squelches the anxiety for a little bit. And then while you're watching it, for me, I have a tinge and it's like, oh, I've been watching too long. Now it's causing more anxiety than it's squelching. And I got to get into some kind of action. Yeah, I guess as a guy who everyone accuses of being a recluse, I was probably looking for an enabler with that question. (laughs) Well, I think part of it is, you know, how we're wired. And, you know, I think there's just, like I had one of my friends who I paid would tell me she didn't necessarily believe in procrastination because there's so much fear under procrastination that, There's two schools of thought. You can take, you know, you can kind of act your way into right thinking. But if you can't take the action because you're so paralyzed, you know what I mean? How do you get there then? That's my dog barking. Um, So I guess it depends on the day you're in. What do you need for the day you're in? Is it a day where you need to step back? Is it a day where you need to push forward? Do you need to push out of your comfort zone? Do you need to step into your comfort zone? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. It's funny because I never because I do procrastinate, but uh, I mean I'm I I never thought of it as there's fear underneath it, which is I always just thought like oh that's part of the process and you're just sort of like drumming up thoughts and ideas before you can actually get into it. But I think you're probably more right with the fear. I think there is that element to it that ideas have to percolate. But I will tell you this: every time I've done something that was big and difficult. It took me, I heard something fantastic the other day, which was the last 10% of any project takes as long as the first 90%. And it took me over a year to get the book out. A, because I didn't know how to press any of the computer buttons. You know what I mean? Like uh, laying out a book in an electron, in a digital system was beyond my comprehension. But I think the months that it took me to find the person and start moving along, the crying and the walking through molasses, 
I think I had to let go, emotionally let go of what people's response to the book was going to be, especially people in my hometown. That's, I was just going to ask that, if that's still part of those voices. No, it's not. Because I think what happened in that time period, was, there was one story I pulled. I had my little sister read the book and tell me what she thought. And uh, we decided that I needed to pull this one story. And she's like, Daddy's 81. Just, you know, just hold on to it. And she was right because I felt like as an artist, because I draw from such personal experience, I need to be mindful of who I'm, you know, writing about and talking about. And um, Amy Sedaris told me that her brother, who writes a lot about the family, you know, will show people, you know what, I don't know if I should say this on the air, so can we? Yes. you edit? Well, or we could just skip it. <laughs> Because if it's, if it's you're afraid of it. But, I mean, you, you know what I mean? I just didn't know. I, she just told me that he shows the family member the piece before he publishes it, which I think is a very great artistic responsibility. You know what I mean? So, at any rate, in long answer to your question, my sister said, why don't you pull this? And that was the only one I pulled. And I tweaked a couple of other sentences, but I was ready. I had to be ready to say, it's sort of like saying to your family, this is who I am now. And whatever your reaction to that is, is going to be okay because I'm okay with who I am. Yeah, it's a, it's a thin line because it's, there's that, or, or for me anyway, it's like, because there's part of, because I'm working on something and it's a lot about my family and I'm like, well, may, maybe you shouldn't have been such a son of a bitch. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's specifically to one of my family members who was just like a very abusive, horrible person. I'm like, well... Maybe if you would have been nice to me, then I wouldn't have these stories to write about. Right. Well, no, I know. I know. Uh, yeah, and, and there's that conflict of, uh, of w with my mother, who's. But it's also like, well, and not uh, you know, uh, your your family sounds a little bit more grounded than than mine. But I was like, uh, well, you were kind of a pretty bad mother. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> so it's like you kind of you did bring it on yourself a little bit. Maybe maybe you should have been home once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing that saves me in the end is that you know that I love all the people I'm talking about, even when I, you know, make fun of them or make fun of them in relation to me or make fun. I feel like at the end of the day, you really you really believe that I love them, and I think that that's what you know, kind of redeems me. That's, there's nothing, there's nothing but warmth in that book. Like, you feel, <clears throat> I felt, like, I just felt, like, at home reading the book. It it just feels good, if that makes, it sounded like I babbled about that too much, but. Like, and I like the pictures, too. They made me, that, and that was its own process. I'm like, why did I think I wanted to put pictures in, but I was writing about stuff that was so visceral, I wanted to see, and then going through the pictures was its own process. Like, I would be crying over which ones to pick, and then I would see pictures of my mother, and then I found, and it was so weird, like, some pictures, I don't, I've been, I've looked through my box of pictures a gazillion times, and then all of a sudden I see one I never saw before, like that one of my dad in front of that gold curtain, which is 
awesome. It's so 70s, and it's so him having the beer and the that lamp and the cigarette, and it was like, holy shit, where did this even come from? Like, it was so fantastic. Yeah, it's... The, and the girl who's laying out the book has a, you know, she was a librarian, but she also has her, ma- she went to art school. So she had a real affinity for the piece as a whole, uh, not just the text, which I really, really appreciated. Yeah, I feel the pictures made it all the more personal. Like, I, even if, like, I mean, I know you, but I didn't know that world and I didn't know that much about it. And it's like, it just really makes you even more connected. Uh, especially that story about the vet Gill, just like to me, I was like, this should that story alone. I was like, that should win awards. <laughs> it's like, that's like. So- I I die for that story so much. I love that story. The first few times I told it verbally, I would bawl my eyes out because it was such. It was one of those moments that, you know, you're in like. A moment that is so extraordinary, that is so divinely inspired. You know what I mean? You're just like, you're in some otherworldly moment. It's like sometimes when I used to hear Stevie Wonder sing, and I'm like, his voice comes from some other source. It's not coming from his body. You know what I mean? Yeah. Alone. But anyhow, that day, that day was so... I don't know. It's very visceral to me. It was just so like no other day I'd ever experienced. Yeah, there's so, so I'm really high right now. So <laughs> you're a big uh, people should know that you are a big you love pills and weed. I love weed. I'm I'm eating a fucking double layered chocolate cake full of weed right now and I'm wearing a bikini top, <laughs> and I'm having a great time. Yeah, that's, that's all I'm going to say. We're just Actually, it's not a bikini. I like to wear a full wool suit in the pool because it makes me feel light, and it doesn't drag me down, and I don't feel like wool is itchy when it's wet. So that's very comfortable. And wool can keep you warm while it's wet. That's a... Wool keeps me really warm. Like, is there any material worse than wool? Let's just say, let's just make, get that out there. I, yeah, I had a shirt that was wool, and it looked really cool on me, but it was the most uncomfortable thing. So, I'd, But I was like 20, and I was just, being cool was more important. But it's just like, my sleeves itched like I was like, it was like I was constantly in hives. It's like wearing a porcupine. You're just like, it. This is not war. You know those army blankets and stuff like that. You're like, this is awful. I'd rather be covered in bees than wear a fucking wool scarf. I think that's why we won World War Two. Is just soldiers just were like, we can get out of this wool finally. Let's just fucking end this. Let's end this wool torture. <laughs> uh, that's the real reason for the uh, for. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They were just like, well, get us out of wool? <laughs> Fuck them. Oh, my God. I just can't imagine. I mean, they've they've refined it a little bit, but imagine what it was like in World War II to wear wool. Oh, my God. 
and then get wet in the snow? I'm, I'm sorry, what's the name of this talk show? <laughs> I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> uh, I'm just glad I never had to fight in anything. Because I would have been the worst. I I would have just complained. My own troops would have killed me because I would have just complained so much. I know, right? My feet are cold. My my wool hat. <laughs> Did anybody see my wool hat? I had it here next to my ration of fucking dry beans. <laughs> and beans again? Why beans again? What I wouldn't do for a piece of chewing gum. Uh, now, when you were uh, just to go back to the Chicago stuff, because you were saying how much you would like to go back. Do you feel like, and you mentioned like Chicago's changing a lot. How do you, as a Chicagoan, how do you feel? Because sometimes I go back and I'm just like, what the fuck is going on here? Well, the thing I know is that my neighborhood never changes. That's great. There's something about. There's something about this, you know, generational, I don't know what you would, value system that there, um, it can only sustain itself because of it. Because the people that grow up there, uh, most people stay. And they have their kids there, and they raise their kids, and their kids have their kids, and they raise their kids. I mean, I'm not kidding when I say, I know everyone on my dad's block. My dad lives on in one house, my sister lives in the other, and my three first cousins live in the houses that surround my sister and my dad. What what would happen if a guy like me moved down there? Like if, it, if outsiders come in, are they like no? Well, I think you would fit in. You would totally fit in. Yeah, but I mean if like people tried to like yuppify it, would they burn down the yuppie? Oh no, that wouldn't happen. That won't happen. How far, no. how far south is Canaryville? It's right near the uh, International Amphitheater. It was 40, it actually starts at 39th to 47th between Halstead and like Normal. So I was literally like seven blocks away from White Sox Park. So you guys were White Sox fans. I'm t- going to take a wild guess. <laughs> yeah, we bumped up against uh, Bridgeport. We're right at the border. You know what I mean? We. Because for some reason, I, I don't know why I thought this. I thought your brother was a Cubs fan. Didn't he do, like, commercials for the Cubs or something? Am I crazy? No, he did Harry Carey. Johnny did Harry Carey. Oh. He was a big Fox fan. We have a couple. Yeah, I mean, there's people in the neighborhood that are Cubs fans. But I think it's a big – like, I spent almost every Friday night at White Sox Park when I was growing up. Yeah, because I have a friend who grew up in Beverly. She's Scottish and a Cubs fan. And I was like, your life must have been fucking oh, uh, terrible. I, well, yeah, a Scott in Beverly and a Cub fan? Yeah. Come on. It's, might as well throw in Protestant while you're at it. I mean, really get your ass kicked. Right? Yeah, that didn't sound good. What side is, are you from the north side, northwest well, side? I, I embarrassingly, we grew up in the suburbs called Streamwood, and it was terrible. Uh, Carol Stream? No, Streamwood. Or Streamwood Plus? No. Streamwood was just, uh, yeah, it was 40 miles northwest near Schaumburg. Real, real, uh, real trash. I mean, we didn't call But there were some Italians there because I'm, oh, I'm thinking Carol Stream. Yeah, Carol Stream is not, like, we, we were, we were, had such a chip on their shoulder, we thought, like, Schaumburg was, was rich. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when Schaumburg was the, 
When I first started at Second City, um, Cle- was it Cleveland? Cleveland was the word. Like, if ever you wanted to blow to a scene and it had a place in it, you'd say, you know, Cleveland. And then when I was, st- you know, moving up, it became Schomburg. And then Richard Kind used to always say, what are you from, Wheaton? Oh, really? Oh, you never, you don't remember that? I don't remember Wheaton being a place. That was just Richard Kynes, but I always enjoyed it because I thought it was just so random. <laughs> and Wheaton's an old Yeah, that place. is pretty random. And it's far away, too. It's, uh, I think there's more. Wheaton was pretty far north. Yeah, and very, 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 very Christian. There's like more. Yeah, super Christian. More churches there per capita than any, like, city in the country or something really crazy. Yeah, I didn't, and it must have been northwest because north on the shore would have been like Glencoe or, um, so Wheaton must have been northwest. Yeah. Now, how did you, like, when, how did you transition out of your neighborhood to go into the theater? Did you go, just leave and go, did you go to proper theater school or? Well, I went to Illinois State and I was sort of in the theater department, but I was too, I don't know. I was I took theater classes and the the woman in charge of the theater department really thought I was talented. She kept wanting me to audition for plays, but I was too afraid. And then Second City came to my college and I lost my marbles and I'm like I have to do that. And so I wound up leaving college and I just started studying at Players Workshop and then as soon as that happened my brain exploded. <clears throat> like it was a it was the most natural thing I'd ever done, ever. And then it kind of took, then that was the path. Yeah, did you, because I was the same way. I saw it, and it's like everything stopped to exist but Second City. And, I mean, I barely went to school. And it's weird because it is a, in a lot of ways, it seems like a weird vagabond, or like a mix of just ne'er-do-wells and vagabonds who just sort of meander <laughs> into this theater. <laughs> right. Because, like, nobody I knew... Like and some of the more brilliant people didn't finish college, and it was like, oh, I guess I shouldn't go to college if all these really smart people quit college. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing too was at that time, I, I would go home to my neighborhood and tell everybody what I was learning, and they were like, what? And then ultimately, I wound up getting, um, find when I went to Players Workshop. One of the friends of one of the guys I was taking classes with, I started dating him, and he lived down the north side, and he kind of became my transition boyfriend from the south side to the north side. And then after I started dating him, then I got my own apartment up there, and then the slow transition began. How did your folks feel about you moving up to the north side? Isn't it like betraying your neighborhood? Um, yeah, I suppose it was. I mean... I didn't have the greatest relationship with them at that point. You know, I was trying to figure myself out. I was pretty, you know. I was work at one point. I was working at the VU. Remember the VU? Um, I'm working. I'm collecting unemployment from a job that I got fired from, which was working in the parts department at an elevator company. So, I'm like working in the parts department, but then I get fired. So, because one of the guys that I went to Players Workshop, Sam Rath, was working 
as an elevator uh, kind of salesman. So he got me a job, and I was the first secretary. Then I became the parts person because it made so much more money. Then, so I'm collecting unemployment from them. I'm cooking at the VU, like making chili and coleslaw for the guys that worked at the, you know, the German car repair shop. And then three days a week, I'm working and in the IC station, you know, the train downtown, in the, a place called the Club Car, at the to-go booth, making like double Manhattans for all the business people that were getting on the train. And then, of course, I'm awake and bake, so I'm up, smoking <laughs> pot, going to make chili at the Boo, and then going to the Club Car, where also, <laughs> I forgot about this, at the club car, which was literally a bar inside the IC station where everyone catches their trains, like Chicago's version of Grand Central. Inside the station is a bar. Inside the bar, they would have those um, negligee fashion shows. <laughs> where, really? Yeah, they would have the girls come in and model nightgowns. It's like, okay, so... It's not enough that I work in the bar in the train station. In the to-go, which was basically me behind like what looked like a snow cone truck, just but with all kinds of booze. It sounds like 1950, not like... <laughs> <laughs> it felt like 1950. And then there would be girls coming out of the office in different negligees. <laughs> What would the guys be doing? Like, like would they be They'd be buying them? buying them or just getting more drinks, buying, you know, to stay and watch the girls. So, oh, my God, I forgot about that. That is so fucking hilarious. That's that's just surreal to me. Like, because I, I just picture, like, you know, dumpy Chicago suburban guys, waiting, you know, just. Exactly. And tr- then coming to me and saying. That's for like for an hour long train ride getting two double Manhattans. You know what that is? It's like it's like twelve shots of whiskey <laughs> with a little bit of cherry juice. God, Chicago. I'm like, dude, for one hour you're gonna whatever. Chicago just primes people for vicious alcoholism. It's like, uh, I mean, my grandfather would take me to bars. Like it wasn't. Oh, totally. Yeah. Up on the bar. my Well, both my parents, both of my grandparents had bars. My, grand, my grandma on my dad's side had a bar restaurant, and my, my grandfather on my mom's side had a bar. That's funny. My grandfather had, bar t- uh, he had bars, too, right around at Clark and Roscoe. Sadly, one of the buildings doesn't exist anymore. It's funny. But that was like I know, such, right? such I think, like... Being in his bar and then being in other bars with him, like, made bars like this magical, warm, like, homey place for me, which is not a good thing to have ingrained in your brain when you're eight years old. No, I totally agree, because even even um, when I wasn't drinking, I would go into bars and have coffee and just write in my journal. Like, it was very, very comfortable for me to hang in a bar. And whatever, it was social, and it was comfortable, and I was used to it, and, you know, the atmosphere was really, really homey to me. Yeah, the it's funny, because I was just in a bar in New Orleans where you can, they still let people smoke, and it, like, I was like, oh, my, I miss my grandparents, because <laughs> it Aww. that full, like, boozy, nicotine, like, bar stink that you used to get, that you can't 
get in most parts of the world anymore. Right. And it's such a, an ingrained, like, even my grandfather's, like, house smelled that way. Right. What? You're, are you all Irish? I'm 50% Irish. My grandfather was German and my grandmother was uh, Polish. So, I mean, that's his, that is the Chicago trifecta. Although you would think being part German and Polish that you would have gotten a little more done. Uh, a little... Uh. <laughs> Why? Well, yeah. I Only because the German really offsets the Irish... Um, you know, sadness and um, socialness. The German really kind of focuses you to kind of, you know. Yeah. My grandfather, was a, who was German, the bar mm. owner, was quite the gregarious drunk. Like, he was, he was, he would say very crass things and people, he could get, he was just one of those guys who could get away with it. Like, he looked at a woman's bosom once and he's like, oh, what cute puppies. I'll take the one with the brown nose. And he just had... <laughs> He just oh had this charm about him that people would just be like, oh, Elmer, that's hilarious. Like, and he could just get away, you know, and he referred to everybody by their racial slur, and people just loved it. <laughs> like, because, you know, Germans aren't naturally funny, so that was interesting that he was a charming German. He was, pro- yeah, I don't know what, uh, maybe it was the, the bourbon he started drinking at breakfast that really kicked that in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Grandpa. Yeah, he would, it was cracking egg and a beer was c- c- common for breakfast and he would chug it wow yeah that's real old school chicago shit well now you know why your mom wasn't home that much (laughs) she learned young to get out of the house she just made the mistake of leaving while she had like four kids there yeah five what you came oh really five i was the youngest of five you come from six yeah and i was the fifth i was the baby for seven years, and then my sister came. So I was the five, the youngest of five for seven years, and then I became, I don't know. Do you think that had anything to do with becoming a writer? I think I became a writer for a couple of different reasons. One was I didn't think being an actor was smart enough. And two, I never wanted to audition, so I wrote all my own stuff. Exactly the way I thought of it, too. But you know what I'm finding is I don't know that... um, I don't know if that completely... You know, if that was... It was the way I went, but had I not been so... You know, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is there are times when other people when it's good to work with other people and whether it was my fear of working with other people or not wanting or not feeling like I had the boundaries to work with other people or not knowing how to collaborate, you know, those things can sometimes get in your way. Sometimes it serves you to be able to collaborate and work with other people. It gets you further. Yeah. And you're, you're not working so alone. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's uh, my ego tells me I can, create everything on my own and like ah you're just as good as Woody Allen (laughs) and then I start working with people and I'm like oh you are way better with other people and you're not Woody Allen well I mean don't you know that feeling you get when you meet someone and you you connect so like 
so genuinely, creatively, and everything you do, the other person gets. And, like, that's a real gift. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to have a couple, have had two or three people in my world where it was just like, there was no questions asked. If somebody like was like, no, nah, that's not so good, then I wouldn't even think twice about debating it. I'd be like, must be right. Were you like that with uh, Zulovic? Uh, Zulovic and I did get along pretty well, and uh, I would say, yeah, he was one of them. Uh, we didn't write a lot together, but improvising and just that approach, like at Second City, we really clicked. We could oh. surely make each other crack up. Oh, I know. It's you know, I had his name in my phone for the longest time. You know what was really funny? I came in. I don't know if you ever did those shows in Beverly with uh, Pete Burns and Meg, you know, for no, the Beverly Arts Center. I would love to have. They were really fun shows. And um, anyhow, you know, George Went would come in because it was his school, Christ the King or whatever that was called. And uh, so we were doing a story. And I was on one side with George, and Zulovic was on the other side of the arc. And I think O'Malley or somebody was conducting the story. And Zulovic said something and got a huge laugh. And George went says to me, who's the kid on the end who just scored? <laughs> That's hilarious. That was my favorite thing about that show, just George went saying, who's the kid on the end who just scored? I was like, oh, my God, I love that. That's so... So old school. There's, there's something, too, that I wanted to ask about the book is, and I know I keep jumping all over the place, but that's... Just make sure you say the title, Matt. Just keep saying the title. I, I have no, it because I want to talk about that, too, but... Uh, when people, because people who've commented on the book, they re they relate it to often uh, Mike Royko and Suds Turkle, who are huge. Like I, I mean, I love them. And as soon as I read it, I was like, oh yeah. And I was like, is that just uh, like was that an influence on you, those guys, or is that just a Chicago and like is that just an a, a broad sort of that's how Chicago influences writers sort of thing? I didn't feel. I mean, maybe they were talking about the personal nature of it from someone who's been, who has a that mindset. You know what I mean? Like, I remember um, um, doing an interview with Studs Terkel when I was doing my first one-person show, you know, Against the Grain at Second City, remember? Yeah. I don't know if you remember. No, I do. I, and, um, I saw it quite a few times, actually. Oh, you did? Oh. Um, so anyhow, I'm, he wanted me to do a little of it, and he was so adored. And this doesn't really answer your question, but um, and he wanted me to do a little bit of it when he was at a commercial break, or he wanted me to do some of it while we were on the air. And then when we went to a break, he goes, "How'd you do that? <laughs> <laughs> How'd you do that? Like I think I was doing my father or something. How'd you do that?" But you know, I can't. I can't speak to that. I don't know. I don't know. It must just be. Like I know. I don't think that's where Ryko came from. Um. Like I don't think it was his most natural wheelhouse. But I think his observational skills let him create characters from that place, 
like the characters that he created when he would do his columns. But I don't know if he was that guy. Yeah. I don't know. He would write some personal, like, uh, especially when his wife passed away. And I, I mean, I still, like, pick up books of his and read them. Uh, and he could actually be quite uh, endearing. He was very poignant. Yeah. That was the word I was looking for, poignant. Uh, yeah, there was a couple pieces he wrote after his wife died that were just really beautiful. And I was, and really yeah. surprising. Um, but yes, the, the book, uh, triggered, triggered the bully, <laughs> triggered her bully is because you talk about being, going from, uh, do you, like being the bully and then there's those people who, uh, who are the bully and who get bullied and then make the switch. And I was like, Jesus Christ, that was me. Cause I was the kid who got the shit kicked out of him. Right. And and it's it's a, a shame too because you're so handsome. <laughs> That's why they they kicked my ass. That might have been why they were beating you. They wanted to knock it off of me. Right. They were trying to make you not handsome. <laughs> that's that's the best. I would have. I've paid thousands of dollars to therapists, and if that's all they could have said, I would have. I would have been fine. Uh, it was just such. A, I never just thought about because there is a time where like. I switched and I was like, "All right, I'm not so picked on anymore." Not that I started beating up people, but it's right. I just never it never dawned on me that way. It's like you do carry that shit around with you, and that's why you keep getting beat up. Right, you have this tell that, like for me, I remember having that realization where I have this tell, so that no matter what my energy says, my behavior, no matter what my behavior is, it's so unnatural to me that my tell is something different. And people treat you, my experience, people treat you by your energy, not by how you're behaving. You know what I mean? So, and people in general, and I don't know if it's people in our business or just in general, are going to try to get away with whatever they can. So some people will see your tell and they'll go right to it or go right for it. But because of my process, when I see that in other people, I don't go for it. I, I can take care of myself, but I'm not going to bring you down just to take care of myself. Yeah, there are some people who are gifted at just knowing what your weakness is, and they will just pull it out in front of people. and just It's a, it's a, a strange and awful gift <laughs> to have. Yes, it is. It is. Both of those things. It is. And, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't have any answers anymore. I don't. I never have. That's why I floundered about my life. Do you? But it doesn't keep me from doing webinars. <laughs> uh, would you be? Are you able to read anything from the book, or is that too much to ask? You mean now? Well, yeah. In this moment? Or like, if you took a minute, or would you rather not? Oh, I don't know. Okay, you don't have to. I just thought. Oh, because of the readers? Oh, no, but I'm I not... mean, because people are listening, you mean? Yeah, but they should buy the book, and if I say that they should buy it, they will goddamn buy it. Yes, they should buy it, and then re if you like it, you should review it. I think I did, but I will double-check on that, because... I, and that was the one thing with this, about the book, is when it... I just couldn't believe I finished it because I couldn't stop reading it. And it was, like, over, and I was like, 
oh, oh, I want so much more, which is the best thing you could <laughs> say about, but I mean, that's the best thing you could say about a book is like, what, like I missed it when I was done with it. I know because the people aren't, because the people are so, in, you know, they're fun. They're really fun people. Yeah, that's, but I, I feel like that's rare in book, like where you're just like, you've become a part of that world and you felt like you know them and then they're gone. I mean, they're not gone. It's still in my Kindle, but <laughs> but it's like... <laughs> There's people living in your Kindle. Like, I, the Gil the Vet thing I have thought about, I have thought about a number of times, and it's such a, it is, it's such a magical and beautiful moment, and it's like, then I think of him after that moment, and we'll keep it vague that way, that will inspire people to read it, but it's like, I'm like, did Gil go back to his, like, just being a, you know, he had this brilliant moment where he's not this sad vet anymore and then it's like did he just return back to being this lonely sort of weirdo well after we had our fourth kid uh <laughs> no I don't, <laughs> I don't i can't i'm not going to answer any questions okay good no i don't i, I don't want to speak to that okay only because while we're talking right now i'm actually got the book open to see if i can read something so here was the thing I said to my husband that you might find interesting this morning. Did you see what I tweeted? I didn't. I was, uh, I, I was in. You were crying. I was crying because it was the morning, and that's when you cry. Every, um, yeah. Every day I wake up, I'm just like, oh, this happened again. <laughs> I said to him, we were sitting in a restaurant, and I looked at him, and I go, "Here's what you need to get your head around." Uh what did I say? Here's what you need to get a re- your head around. I'm into spirit. I'm into spirit guides now. He was <laughs> just like eating his eggs. Does he get something like that most days from you? Yeah. <laughs> Here, you mentioned in the, here's what you need to get your head around. I'm into spirit guides. Because you mentioned in the book um, too that every once in a while you're like, I'm not eating this now. There's always something. Oh my I'm god. I'm such a pain in the ass with the food. Because I've in my this is the thing that my legacy of my mother left me, so much fear around gaining weight and food. So I've been on a quest to perfect some kind of, you know, fantasy body and fantasy food plan that's going to be the big answer, and it's never come. And my poor, I, I keep telling people I'm vegan, except I keep eating shaved Parmesan cheese because I don't count Parmesan cheese as cheese. No, a lot of people don't know because that. Because it's Parmesan. Yeah, it comes from the, a lot of people don't know it, it comes from arugula. It is, it, 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 yeah. it comes from the part of the cow that's Parmesan. Uh, yeah, I tried to do vegan for two weeks, two months. I did it, and I and then I walked into a French restaurant, and I was like, "You gotta be fucking kidding me! I'm gonna eat grilled vegetables <laughs> when I can have beef bourguignon." Sorry, cow. I still am not eating the meat, but I'm like having some tuna, and I'm having eggs. But it's still like, I I don't even know why I'm doing what I'm doing anymore. I've, when I went vegan, it was at Christmas, and so that just meant I ate cookies for like two months. Oh, there you go. A fisherman told me uh, in New Orleans that he said if it, it is probably the safest time to eat fish than it has been in a long time because he's like they test the shit out of it because he because of BP Amico and what happened in the Gulf 
uh, he said like he when they first were allowed to go back fishing, they they burned an entire load of his crabs because uh, because they weren't they were still tainted. He's like they will not let. He's like it's insanely strict, which I you, you always think they're going to be lazier that way, and you know everyone you see all those posts about how people are eating fish that might be this or that, and he's like it is extremely safe right now. Except of except for Fukushima. Yeah, I guess I mean he's on the other ocean, so so get your, oh okay, so maybe get your shit from Atlantic stuff from the East Ocean. Yeah. That's what I call it, the East Ocean. <laughs> I prefer um, that. Stuff from the East Ocean is better. Stuff from the West Ocean, not so good. Yeah, I've heard the. F- I've heard some fishermen have had stuff tested in uh, on the West Coast, and it's it's not. There's discrepancies on what uh, on how much of that is actually getting over here. Over here, I don't think you want to go eating sushi in Japan. That's for fucking sure. Right. Right. But you know, we live in L.A. I could, you know, I I could get hit by a stray bullet. So what's this? And that's probably coming from my girlfriend. <laughs> She's still with you. That speaks a that speaks volumes. Because I've never had it so good, so I know I can't. I'm like if I I'm never gonna have it. This a person that kind and wonderful loved me. So I'm like. If I screwed this up, I'd be like, you have to... Like, I just did all her laundry. Like, that's what I've become. Because I'm like, I just want to keep her happy. And it's Right. Well, that's nice. It's fear driving this relationship, not love. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Did you find anything? Yeah, I was going to... What? Oh, I was good. I asked if you found anything uh, readable. I did. I was going to read this. Let me see. Okay. It's very tiny. That is fine. Um, The other family of cousins was the McGarry family, related to my cousins on their mother's side. My best friend at the time, Anne, is the third of 11 children. There were quite a few families in my neighborhood with nine or more children. According to statistics, with so many kids, you think there would have been more gay people in my neighborhood. But I guess when you're drunk all the time, it's hard to figure out if you're gay. Is that good? That's great. More? <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, and people can get your book on Amazon? Uh, it's Yes, it's actually in Kindle. It's um, it's on the front page of the Kindle page, oh, or really? the singles, on the singles page, yeah. And, um, yeah, it's called I Triggered Her Bully. I have a fan page on Facebook, and they can just go to Amazon and type in either my name, Cindy Caponera, or I, Kindled, or I Triggered Her Bully, and the book will come up. It's only two ninety nine, so it's super cheap. You don't even have to think about it. It's less than a gallon of gas. It's less than a fancy water. And um, you just hit that buy button. That's all you got to do. And, oh, and if you, I think if you hit it from your computer, like a laptop, or it might come down. It might just pop onto your computer. But if you need to for your tablet or whatever, your iPad, you can download a free Kindle app. 
and you can get the book and then put it on there. And it'll be coming out in hard copy, and I'm trying to get it out in hard copy by April 10th. So we'll see. Oh, that's great. Well, and it's going to have another, an additional story in it, the one. Well, I'll buy that as well, as, as, as should my listeners. And you're also uh, CCCAP at Twitter. Yes, CCCAP. CCCAP. That was C. You're smarter than me. You've thought of a better CC way. CCCAP at Twitter, and um, I'm going to probably put the start the fan page today, so look for the fan page on Facebook, and you can find out if I'm doing readings or um, what the book is doing or, you know, me, what size pants I'm wearing. There's going to be all kinds of really interesting information you on there. You started an Amazon gift shop for yourself so people can just send you whatever you'd like to put up there. Yeah, yeah, I did. I have my own Amazon gift shop page. So, yeah, I'm not sure how that works because Amazon just might take the material you send to them and put it in their inventory. <laughs> I'm not sure how to do that. That's true. That's probably what they do. I do know that in order for me to get paid for the book, I have to basically take a tweezers and put it inside my computer and try to pull money out. That's how I do that, right? Yeah, no, that's how it happens. Yeah. Just like uh, oh. I used to think people, tiny people lived in my Victrola. Exactly. Well, it's sort of the same thing. Yeah. Thank you very much, Cindy. I, I, I'm very happy you did this. Thank you, Matt, for having me. I really, really enjoyed it, and it was nice getting to know you better. Thank you very much for listening to this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you listened to, uh, there's a million episodes. I've done uh, 90-something episodes, so that's not a million. Check out all the others. Go and check out my archive. I've talked to some great people. Wayne Kramer from the MC5, Rodney Anonymous from The Dead Milkman. I've talked to Poe Ballantyne, some really great authors. I have some great episodes coming up. with some. I have some great interviews lined up. Wayne Kramer's actually going to come back. Follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore DeWire. Also, I have a website now, themattdwyer.com. Check that out. Listen to the other shows on feralaudio.com. Please, I implore you. They're great shows. There's so many great shows. And speaking of great shows, it costs us money to do these. If you could donate some money to my show and we all, or Feral Audio, uh, you know, we, we operate, we, we skin of our teeth and we give you really great stuff, I think, real quality. If you can't afford to donate, I understand. Go to uh, Amazon on my page there. Go to the Amazon link, and you buy some bullshit on Amazon, and I get a kickback. Every time I buy stuff now, I buy it through my... So I'm, in effect, just giving money back to myself, which is nice. I mean, it's a nice gesture on my behalf. Um, that's it. I thank you so much for listening to my show. I love you. Power to the people.